Hey friends, I hope you're all staying as safe and healthy and comfortable as possible, and that you're taking care of all the people and pets and plants that are important to you. If you're a music fan and you spent any time at all on Twitter last Sunday, meaning the 19th, there's a good chance you saw this very polarizing tweet from the Twitter profile of the Philadelphia alternative pop band Japanese Breakfast. If you didn't see it, I'm going to read it to you right now. Quote, Revolver is the tusk of Beatles albums. Anyone who claims it's their best is an unfeeling snob that's effing kidding themselves. End quote. For those who don't know, Tusk is the 1979 studio double album from the band Fleetwood Mac. I've said it before and I'll say it again right now. Music is my sports. And what I mean when I say that is that in the same way sports teams and games can be endlessly argued over and people can feel exceedingly passionate about them, I have a similar passion for bands and artists and their recorded output. This tweet from the Japanese Breakfast Twitter profile, and I'll read it to you once more. Let me just give it to you again here. Revolver, quote, Revolver is the tusk of Beatles albums. Anyone who claims it's their best is an unfeeling snob that's effing kidding themselves, end quote. That tweet from the Japanese Breakfast Twitter profile made people absolutely insane. And I love that. And I think the reason why this sort of polarizing musical discourse makes me so happy is because it means I'm not alone. That people feel passionately about this stuff too. And I'll tell you another thing, I don't even know if I agree or disagree with Japanese Breakfast Tweet, because while I feel like I have a good handle on the Beatles discography, my knowledge of Fleetwood's Mac, Fleetwood, Fleetwood's Mac, <laughs> Fleetwood Mac's discography includes Rumors and Tusk, and that's it. And I know Fleetwood Mac has over 20 studio albums, and there are fans of that band who will argue that some of their best records, if not all of the best records that came from that band, came out prior to 1975 when Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks joined, meaning prior to both Rumors and Tusk. For me, I prefer Rumors over Tusk, but again, those are the only two Fleetwood Mac records I know inside and out. And as far as the Beatles go, this may be sacrilege for hardcore Beatles fans, but depending on the day, my favorite Beatles album is either The White Album or Abbey Road. I don't know what you think. What do you think? Do you think folks who believe Revolver to be the Beatles' best album are unfeeling snobs? Is your favorite Beatles album Revolver? Are you an unfeeling snob? What about Tusk? Where do you stand on Tusk? I'll tell you, I was so impressed by the, the boldness of this Japanese breakfast tweet, I immediately went on to Goodreads and I added their lead singer Michelle Zahner's memoir, Crying in H Mart, to my want-to-read list because... Anybody who's banned's Twitter profile tweets out a statement so polarizing in regard to music fans' opinions, they, they've got to have some heavy thoughts. And speaking of books with heavy thoughts, did you know that my name is Andy Mascola? And while there are no ads and no Patreon set up for the People Are the Enemy podcast, I am the author of 10 self-published books? It's true. If you'd like to help, your, uh, help myself and the show monetarily and get yourself or the reader in your life some quality fiction, please consider purchasing any or all of my novels. You can find all 10 of my stories in both ebook and paperback formats worldwide at Amazon. If you don't use Amazon, you can purchase all 10 of my titles in ebook format at Google Play. Just search my last name, M-A-S-C-O-L-A. That's how you'll find me on Google Play. If you've already purchased any or all of my novels, thank you, thank you, thank you. I sincerely appreciate your generous patronage. And with all that out of the way, Here's the quirky theme song. Yeah. 
Hello, people are the enemy listeners. This is episode 269 of the People Are the Enemy podcast. The one and only, you found it. This is the place you want to be. Why would you be anywhere else? How dare you? What are you going to listen to? Flee from the Red Hot Chili Peppers new podcast? <laughs> Have you heard that guy's voice? Go ahead. Go listen to that garbage. If you want to listen to that, you deserve it. Nonsense. Oh, he's doing it to help some school? Oh, pardon me. <laughs> I retract everything I said. Go check it out. <laughs> no, no, no. Come on, he's very talented. He is, No, he's a very good bassist, honestly. <laughs> no, but his voice leaves something to be desired, you know? You ever see that guy's home? Oh, my God. There was some website, and I was, uh, I was checking it out. It basically was like these video tours of celebrity homes. And I saw Flea's home, and I was just like, oh, my God. This is what being in that band pay, like gets you? <laughs> just, you, you'll want to, like, ugh. I won't even say it. But, uh, yeah, you won't be happy. <laughs> you'll be envious, for sure. Incredible. Okay, let me take the music down here. By the way, that's Depeche Mode you're hearing. Let's see if we can take this down gently. As much as I don't want to. There we go. Nice and slow. There we go. Goodbye. By the way, new Depeche Mode single. Very good. I don't know if you've heard it. Um, I think it's just... I think at this point it's just Martin and David. Meaning Martin Gore and Dave Gahan. But, uh... Dave Gahan sounds top-notch. The music was very good. I was like, this isn't bad. This isn't bad at all. It's been a while since I've uh, listened to uh, anything new by them. I think the last new album I got into by them, or the last new single I got into by them, was Wrong. And how long ago was that? Probably a long time ago. But I heard that. I saw the music video, and I was like, this is this is great. This takes me back. It reminds me of you know the, the music I loved from this band way back in the day, meaning the stuff... The stuff that I was introduced to as a younger person, like, um, you know, um, music for the masses. You know, I had the record, or I have the record, rather, Some Great Reward. You might remember that one. You can picture that. Uh, the couple, very iconic, this couple being, uh, you know, wedding, a marriage, uh, a marriage situation, wedding, a marriage situation. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Like, you know, but uh, just a great band. Obviously, the later stuff... Um, Violator, incredible, incredible album. Uh, that was a big one. Man, oh man. What else? What else? What else do I have by them? I think I have the People Are People album. I don't, you know, it's got the that single on there and a bunch of other stuff. It seems more like filler, that one, though. It's not really so much a studio album. Uh, but yeah. But yeah, latest single is very good. Uh, I'm definitely going to check out the whole album. I was impressed. Uh, those guys still got it, whatever that is. <laughs> How you doing? It's good to have you here. It's good to see you. You are looking very well, and uh, you are in the right place. This is the best podcast. And yeah, no, it, no, it doesn't have a lot of listeners, but uh, but we've got a hardcore fan base, and we're very, very proud and happy with what we have here. And we're uh, we we aim to put out a good show. We aim to please. I finally got through the movie. Um, speaking of aiming to please, <laughs> no, I got. <laughs> Yeah, well, aiming, I guess. Uh, I don't know how much pleasure there was in it, but uh, Top Gun Maverick. I, I finally watched the whole thing. I, I, it, it took two tries. 
I gotta have some water here. Excuse me one second. And speaking of taking two tries, I think this is about the fourth attempt of me recording this episode because I just uh, am not on my game right now. Man, oh man. But um, but yeah, it, for, to get to get through Top Gun Maverick in its entirety, it took it took two tries. The first try I tried like last week. I think it might have been Monday night. And I put it on, and I might have just finished working all day. And I'll tell you what took me out of it immediately. It was like, and, and, and you'll know these these kinds of scenes I'm speaking about, even if you haven't seen Top Gun Maverick. And I'm not spoiling anything. But it's the scene in an action movie where they show, like, they have to show the guy his mission, you know, and then they show, like... <laughs> show like a screen you know it's like some kind of like tutorial and there's a guy saying here's your mission you're gonna have to fly the thing and they're showing like the, the map and everything and the cool looking little um icons and everything and this is you know they're mapping it out showing like you know sort of like what they did in star wars when they showed like here's what you gotta do you gotta shoot you gotta shoot down here and then it'll destroy the death star you gotta shoot the if you shoot the missile right into the you know it makes it very simple for the audience to understand like the, what what the object is of the uh of the of the the pilot, you know what I mean. You just you shoot the missile and it goes right in the hole, and then it'll blow the whole thing. <laughs> so dumb, right? It's just for dummies, right? But it needs to be for dummies because you need to get as many dummies watching as you can. And I was a dummy who was watching it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so okay, so they're going over the mission, and it's very much like that. It's very much like you, you get you get what you do when you fly the plane. You got to take your plane, and then you fly it over here, and you drop it. <laughs> And then you shoot the ding, and you shoot the ding, and the ding, and the ding, and the explode, and then we win! Yeah! <laughs> so dumb, right? So, so I'm watching this, and, like, I'm watching this movie, and they get to that part where it's, like, John Hamm from Mad Men, and he's giving Tom Cruise his mission. You know what I mean? And he's showing like the screen, and he's showing the uh, he's showing like the fake, you know, the the uh, the the little CGI planes and everything. Like you're, you're gonna do, you're gonna fly your plane right over to here. You're gonna go right in here. <laughs> you're gonna drop your payload right in here. And then, oh, that's I don't know if that can be done. And of course, it's like oh, it's looks so hard. <laughs> And he's like, and of course Tucker's like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, <laughs> you know. And I shut the damn thing off. I was like, f this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, first of all, I feel like an idiot watching Top Gun Maverick in 2023, right? <laughs> watching, watching Tom Cruise, right? But, but uh, that was the scene, man. I was just like, f this. This is not what I came for. Like. I'm not a dumb dumb, first of all, and secondly, like I've been staring at a GD. I've been staring at a GD screen all day. I don't want to watch a screen while I'm looking at a screen. You know what I mean? Like I'm watching a movie screen, and on the movie screen, I'm seeing another screen, and I'm like, oh my god, this is insanity! Just show me some people and some emotion and some great acting. <laughs> like, like that's what I want to see. I can't. I can't stand this baloney, you know what I mean? This ri ridiculousness, please, just take it off. And, like, I, I understand, like, they've got to demonstrate this somehow, right? Because that's the plot of the movie, right? And the movie's about jets. <laughs> and guys in the military, guys in the Navy flying jets. So, yeah, and you've got it for all the idiots, you have to understand, like, the idiots have to understand this is the mission. You just nod your head like, uh-huh. Okay, all right. You gotta fly the plane over the thing, and you gotta drop the, the drop the drop the the gun into the. You gotta shoot his gun into that thing. <laughs> <laughs> you 
just so dumb. And uh, yeah, man, I guess I got like so angry and it's like, I'm just like, F this. And I shut it off. I was like, and that was, and I'll tell you that, that happens in like the first, what, 15 minutes of the movie. <laughs> like that's how early I bailed. I was like, forget this. I can't, I can't do it. It's just so dumb. But you know what I could get through? And you're going to say like, you just say like, you're going to say like, Andy, you're an idiot. Like, because, because what I could get through with no problem that same like day or maybe the day before was you don't mess with the Zohan. <laughs> You know what that is? That's that that's that idiotic uh Adam Sandler movie. I say idiotic, but it's a comedy. It's like I'm here I'm going to defend it, right? It's where he plays like an Israeli um commando of some sort, right? I don't quite understand, but he works for like the Israeli military, okay? Uh but it's Adam Sandler and he's got a thick is he's putting on a thick Israeli accent. And uh, he's in Israel enjoying his life, and he finds out, like, there's a bad man in New York City that he has to go take care of. And uh, his dream, this character's dream, and his name is the Zohan, or Zohan, and he's famous for being this this uh, Israeli badass, is that uh, he wants to be a hairstylist, but... Uh, but everybody gives him a hard time because, I guess, in Israeli culture, or at least in his family, it's considered to be a job for women. So he wants to go to New York City where he could be accepted and, and be a hairstylist. But he's also on this mission to uh, to take out this this uh, uh, bad uh, this bad man played by John Turturro. And speaking of of great actors, John Turturro, first of all, is great, and he's in it. And of course. There's a lot of SNL alums in it. You've got Kevin Nealon, who I love, by the way. I love Kevin Nealon. Chris Rock is in it. Uh, but there's some musicians in it, too, which is kind of weird, right? They've got, of all people, Dave Matthews is in it. And Dave Matthews is, like, unrecognizable. And he plays, like, a like a southern white supremacist <laughs> in Zoyan. And you're like, who is this guy with this mustache? Who is this guy? It's, it's Dave Evan Matthews from the Dave Matthews. It's like the best thing I've ever seen Dave Matthews do. God, God knows I would listen to his music. You know what I mean? But uh, he's very good in this as this this like um, dumb Southern, uh, you know, um, racist. This is what he is, and uh, he's really really funny. And what else is in it? Mariah Carey is in it as herself, which is kind of great, and I I I love that. And uh, of all people, like Michael Buffer is in it. And it, it, you might say, who the hell is Michael Buffer? Okay, Michael Buffer is that guy who says, let's get ready to rumble! Like, that's all he's known for. He's like an announcer in, like, the boxing ring, you know, and into the microphone. And he plays, like, this um, this this corporate, um, uh, what is it called? Like, a, like he's looking to build, like, this, this uh, giant uh, corporate... Uh, uh, office space or something or some kind of, like I don't even know what the point of it is. There's like there's like posters of him all over and he's looking to 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 build this this um this super mall or something like that. Anyway, but yeah. So but I got through that no problem at all. You know what I mean? Even though Nick Swordson's in it, you know, Nick Swordson's not too bad. He plays like a, a like a kind of like a, a self-deprecating schlub in it. So that's kind of funny. But yeah, I got through that no problem. But I but I, you know but Ask me to watch like this film that had like 97% uh, critics rating, 99% audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes, meaning Top Gun Maverick. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And I'm like, I'm like, what is wrong with me? I, like, I, I guess I just like comedy. You know what I mean? What ended up happening, however, and again, I did eventually get through it. This is, and this is how I eventually got through it. My dad came over on Thursday night and he brought a pizza 
And um, he, he got there, and my daughter wasn't home, but she was scheduled to get out of work and be home in like two hours. And I said, hey, Dad, you know, uh, if you want to see if you want to see the kid, she's going to be home in a couple hours. I don't know if you feel like hanging out. And he's like, yeah, I'll hang out. And we're sitting at the kitchen table together, and I'm like, I, I'm not, I can't just sit here for two hours I with my dad. I love my dad, and there's stuff to talk about with him. But, you know, once you've exhausted the stuff, what are you going to do? Just look at your phones for two hours? So I said, I said, hey, Dad, let's go. I said, you know, uh, Top Gun Maverick just showed up on cable. Why don't, why don't we watch that together? Would you like to watch that? And he said, yeah. And my dad's like an action movie guy. You know what I mean? He loves, like... Uh, the Bourne movies, he's really into that. He's, he he loved 007 back in the day, you know, but now it's all about, like, the, the Bourne films and stuff, so he likes stuff like that. So so I said, you know, when, you want to check out Top Gun? And he said, yeah, sure. So I put it on, and uh, and he said, have you seen this already? And I said, I've seen some of it. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't tell him, like, I bailed when, they, when John Hamm showed up and started showing the dumb mission. But, uh, yeah, so, so I put it on, and we're watching it, and... I, you know, again, it was the sort of same thing. Like I, I just started looking at my phone cause I got just bored to tears, man. As soon as I see like, you know, the, first of all, the stiffness and machismo and stuff that it's just unappealing to me. And I understand it's like, it's supposed to be the American military. So they're all kind of stiff and, you know, everything is like rules and regulations and they're treating each other a certain way, but it's just like such a drag. You know what I mean? And, uh, like Jennifer Connelly is in it. And of course she's beautiful, but this movie had like the most chaste quote unquote sex scene like you've ever seen in your entire life. It was so dumb. This is like, like, oh my gosh. I mean, I understand. Okay, look, it's 2023. All right. The movie is PG-13. It's got to appeal to as many people as possible. It's got to be shown overseas. And there are audiences in certain countries that do not like or allow, you know, sexual scenes in movies. So they have to keep it very chaste, very conservative. And they do. And it sucks. <laughs> because here's what you see. You see, like, you see, like, uh, um, Tom Cruise and Jennifer Connelly, like him lying down and like, taking off his shirt, and, but nothing on the other end, okay, which is fine, which is fine, okay, um, but the, the next thing you see is, like, there, there's a cut, and the next thing you see is, like, her in, like, a long sleeve, like, flannel, um, um, sleepwear, <laughs> you know what I mean, like, very conservative, so it's, like, so it's all the implication was that they made love, you know, Okay, fine. I guess, like, it just, it just, I don't know, man. Just, like, the thing that kills me is that, like, if you're going to show, like, people hurting each other and being absolutely awful to each other, and, like, and and there's violence in this movie, of course, because, of course, it's, it's, a, it's Top Gun. It's an action film. So there's violence, and people are treating each other terribly. Um, why can't you show the opposite? You know, people treating each other wonderfully and lovingly. And, like, you know, and I'm not asking for gratuitousness. Because um, I understand that, like, that's not the idea of the film. But if you're showing two people, you know, together, show the two people together for crying out loud. You know what I mean? It just seems like such a such a weird double standard. And uh, it just it just sucks that, like, that's okay. Like, violence all over the place is okay. But God forbid you should show a nipple. All right. And maybe you're going to give me a hard time for this, but I don't know. It's just the way I feel. All right. Let's move on. Uh, 
<laughs> and speaking of speaking of my father and watching things with him, this was funny. This happened the week prior because the week prior I I brought a pizza over to his house, and what uh, what we we do and what we've done for the past uh, five weeks or so is when we get together, we'll have a pizza and then we'll watch something on television. And and when I was at his house, he said, "Put on whatever you like." And my dad's got more channels than I do. We have, like, the very basic cable package, which is, like, I think it's called Flex. And it's basically just allows you to have the app. So it's got, like, Peacock. And uh, then we bought, like, this package that gives us Hulu and Netflix and Disney Plus and ESPN, which we never watch. We never watch ESPN. But, but we, we have it because it's part of the package. Anyway, uh, but when I'm at my dad's house, he's getting everything. So he's got, like, all the streaming standard cable channels. So he's got, like, all the news channels, and he's got all the basic channels, and he's got Comedy Central. So, like, if he gives me the remote, I'm a comedy guy. I'm going to put on comedy. And my dad doesn't watch a lot of comedy, uh, hence me entertaining him with uh, Top Gun Maverick when he came over. But he doesn't watch a lot of comedy. And so I I saw that The Office was on, and I guess they show like a, like a marathon of episodes of The Office in the evening on Comedy Central. And rightfully so. That show is super popular, and there are most of the seasons of that show are, are quite watchable and quite good, right? Of The American Office, that is, with Steve Carell. Um, but... Okay, obviously, because, you know, the British office had, what, two seasons, and that was it? They're probably like eight episodes total, something ridiculously small. I don't know. I don't know why British television does that, but... Yeah, okay, so it was very successful over here. They had this huge run, long run of uh, of seasons. A lot of them are very good. So I'm like, all right, well, you know, it's a safe bet. If I put on The Office, it'll be it'll be okay. It'll be fun, you know what I mean? And you, you can watch that, you know? So I put it on, but my dad, I don't think he understood it was a comedy. And like, <laughs> he's watching it with me, and he goes... God, everybody in this office seems to be a whack job. <laughs> I look at him and I said, "Dad, Dad, this is Dad. This is a this is a a comedy." <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, okay." I wanted to say like, I think it was like, you know, he likes com like, and it's not like he doesn't know comedy, but I just think he's used to like a laugh track or like you know like the canned laughter or the um, the live studio audience, like, cause he loved Seinfeld. You know, who didn't, really? But but there was a laugh track, obviously. And through so many sitcoms, there's so many, you know, sitcoms through the, the, the 70s, through the 80s, even the 60s, right? Even the 60s and before. Like, Leave it to Beaver, didn't it have a laugh track? It did, right? So, like, yeah, like, you know, way back, uh, there's a laugh track in, in these sitcoms. You know, the Flintstones had a laugh track, for crying out loud. I think it wasn't until, like, The Simpsons that they, they removed the laugh track from, like, e an evening cartoon, you know, uh, and that's uh, obviously comedy. It's, uh, the characters look ridiculous. <laughs> you're supposed to you know. Anyway, you're not supposed to take that seriously. <laughs> Mention watching The Simpsons thing is real. Or supposed to be taking like a, a drama. Jeez. Okay. Anyway, we're watching. So we're watching The Office. My dad says, uh, everybody in this office seems to be a whack job. <laughs> and then I have to tell him, no, dad, it's 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 a comedy. And uh, and this made me think, though, like, like, when did that start? You know what I mean? Like, when did the... Because it, it seems like, like, because I was trying to think of all the most popular comedies, and so many of them had laugh tracks. Like, I think the ones that don't, you can count on one hand. Like, Arrested Development didn't. Um, of course, The Office. Uh, Malcolm in the Middle, I don't believe, had a laugh track. Uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Any kind of, like, cable comedies, I don't think did. Like, The Larry Sanders Show. Like, those kind of shows didn't have a laugh track. 
And I started thinking about, like, the history of the laugh track and how odd it is that, like, initially, when, you know, when things were brought to television, I think, like, the Three Stooges shorts, I think, are a perfect example. Like, there'd be sound effects, but there was no laugh track. But you knew it was to be laughed at, and it was funny. You know, like, Little Rascal, same sort of thing. Like, there was no laugh track, but you understood that this was comedy, and you were supposed to laugh at it, you know. But, uh... But it just struck me as so my dad. My dad did not did not understand. Uh, but uh, I, I is. But you know that's it. But again, like I said, he's it's 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 not his his uh, metier. You know what I mean? It's not it's not his preferred genre. He'd much rather watch. Uh, he'd much rather watch uh, the Bourne films. <laughs> that's much more up his uh, up his alley. Ah <laughs> oh, man, you know what I saw? Speaking speaking of films, I saw Megan finally. It showed up on Peacock, and this is that movie with the the robotic doll, the life size robotic doll that uh, it goes on a killing spree. <laughs> and it was funny, man. But it was like, it was intentionally funny. It was so ridiculously over the top and so funny. I was laughing so hard. Even like the violent scenes were just like so so absolutely um, just over the top and and funny. <clears throat> and what what struck me as particularly funny is. Alison Williams in this movie is like this, the, the, the young girl who is given the Megan doll. It's her, Alison Williams plays this young girl's aunt and she's taken in this girl because her parents have passed and she is a roboticist, meaning Alison Williams is a roboticist, but she still has like this like Valley girl accent, <laughs> which is like, I guess that could happen, but she kind of just sounds dumb. <laughs> she's like she's like I have to upload the data to the cloud <laughs> you're like yeah, alright <laughs> and I don't know if that was like like I, I guess this is the way Alison Williams talks like when she's quiet when she's talking and she's being like very serious and trying to be sensitive it comes across as like it comes across like okay that, that makes sense but when she's like excitable and walking around saying this is Megan. She's the first doll that she read. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and you're like, this woman's a scientist. <laughs> I was like, I was like, all right. But again, it's a comedy. So you just go with it. You know what I mean? Granted, you know, I understand that. Like, but again, I don't know if that's intentional or if that's just the way Alison Williams speaks. Oh gosh. All right. Let me get into some clips for you here because I've got, uh, I've got just one this week, but I thought you'd, you'd dig this. This is a lot of fun. And uh, what this is a clip of is uh, Elliot Page being interviewed by Barbara Walters. And uh, and uh, Barbara Walters does not uh, get the Moldy Peaches. And if you don't know who the Moldy Peaches are, the Moldy Peaches were Kimya Dawson. Or I should say are. Are Kimya Dawson, because I think they're on tour again. Kimya Dawson and Adam Green. And they were what was called anti-folk, basically inspired by kind of like the Beck era of early Beck, you know what I mean? Where it was like, um, you know, silly folk essentially, you know, and, and they were great and they were sensitive and, uh, funny, but also like heartwarming, just a wonderful, in my opinion, a wonderful, wonderful band, but Barbara Walters did not understand them. And here Barbara Walters is speaking with Elliot Page and it's about Elliot's movie, uh, Juno. And of course, if you know the movie Juno, if you've seen the film, then you you understand why she brings up the Moldy Peaches. It's because their music is featured uh, in the film. 
And, uh, well, I won't give any more away, because Barbara does. So this is Barbara Walters, again, speaking with Elliot Page about, uh, about the moldy peaches. Here we go. I want to ask you about the music. Okay. Um, Juno, you said, would love the moldy peaches. Okay. This two people group, whatever. We had them on the view. I don't get it. You're a part-time lover and a full-time friend. The monkey on your back is the latest trend. I don't see what anyone could see in anyone else but you. Kiss you on the brain in the shadow of the train. It's hinging on novelty. But at the core of it, it is so beautiful. And it is so honest. And it just hits me on a level that that I can't deny. I will say this. It's a very catchy tune. I mean, we went around all day singing it. Can you do it for us now, that little? A little? Yeah. No, I can't. No. I can't sing without a guitar. I'm Believe gonna, me, it would be... You know what? I'm going to get you a guitar. By I... the end of this interview, we'll have, you sing, we'll have you singing it. I want to ask you about the music. Okay. Uh... That was it. It repeated after that. But uh, I feel bad that I feel bad that Barbara Walters couldn't appreciate the moldy peaches, but then, <laughs> but I guess I guess hence the, there's a reason why the moldy peaches weren't as huge as the Strokes. I remember in that Lizzie Goodman book, uh, "Meet Me in the Bathroom," which which was this basically like um, what do they call these books? I can I can never remember the name of them. It's sort of like like oh, okay, I know it's called like an oral history where each like paragraph is a different person talking. It's almost like you're reading a documentary film. So each paragraph is a different person talking. But Lizzie Goodman wrote this great book, if, you, if you're ever interested, called Meet Me in the Bathroom. And it's all about the New York City indie music scene of the 2000s. So we're talking about The Strokes. We're talking about Interpol. We're talking about Jonathan Fire Eater. And, um... We're talking about the yeah, yeah, yes, LCD sound system, etc., etc. Okay, it's great, by the way. And I think it is it is a documentary film. I've yet to see it. But I remember this distinctly because uh, Rough Trade Records, I think, came and they took, they took the strokes out for this huge dinner and meaning like at a very nice restaurant and offered them a, a beautiful record contract to distribute their records overseas. And the Moldy Peaches, and this is relayed by Adam Green, one half of the Moldy Peaches, said that the same executives took the Moldy Peaches to pick a bagel and gave them a check for like $1,000. <laughs> like, that was it. That's all they got. Oh, But they are wonderful. Like, listen, and by the way, if you're looking for that clip, and I'm going to turn the volume down, I don't want to, I don't want to play accidentally again. Um, you can find that on Kimya Dawson's, well, again, the other half of the Moldy Peaches, Kimya Dawson's TikTok account, and which can be found at Grandpa Kimya Dawson, all strung together. And, uh, yeah, just wonderful. I have, you know, I, I love Kimya Dawson's solo work. I love the Moldy Peaches. I love some of Adam Green's stuff, but I think I think they're best, like, I think they're best when they're, they're strongest when they're together. But, yeah, but Kimya Dawson's solo albums are also very, very good. I, I recommend all that stuff. Really, really wonderful. Uh, what else do I have to talk to you about today? I got a little more time. We got a lot of time on this episode. Um, 
because there's a lot of time left at the end of the month. Oh, I wanted to talk about doghouses. When was the last time you saw a doghouse? Do you remember? Like, I can't think of, like, the time I remember. And, and I only thought of this because I was watching this movie, Megan, and, uh, and there's a dog featured in this film, and there's a fence between the yards of the, uh, of the, the family that has the Megan doll and their neighbors, but, like, but there's, and the dog seems to be out all the time, and, and my wife commented on this, because she and I were watching the film together, and I said, you know, I said, I guess, like, back in the day, and it, uh, the movie's supposed to take place in the present, but I, I, I just said, you know, people seem to keep their dogs outside. You remember, like, dog, I'm thinking of, like, Charlie Brown and Snoopy, you know, Snoopy's always, like, I guess the joke was he was, like, lying on top of his doghouse, you know what I mean? And uh, that was that was supposed to be funny. But, like, you never see dog... Like, I can't remember. Like, maybe as a kid there were doghouses around? But it was... Is that because, like, people kept their, their, their dogs outside all the time? Like, I don't know. And maybe it's just places... Maybe warmer climates. Maybe folks can do that uh, year-round. I don't... I don't know. I live in New England, and uh, it gets very, very cold here. We could not keep our dog outside. If you kept your dog outside, you'd be... It would be considered abuse. I think even with a doghouse, it would be considered abusive. But uh, yeah, man, it's just a weird thing. Like you don't see doghouses anymore. I can't. I can't remember the last time I saw a doghouse. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so yeah. Sorry, there was a whole lot of music in this segment, but uh, but uh, that's what's going on. The Top Gun Maverick and uh, and uh, Megan. <laughs> And uh, that's about it. What else can I tell you? Yoko Ono is 90. How about that? Happy birthday, Yoko Ono. That's kind of cool, right? Speaking of the Beatles, bringing it all back around. Yoko Ono still kicking. I saw like a video of her, too, getting up to a microphone and doing her thing. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if it was recent, but it would say, like, Yoko Ono is 90. And she got up there and started, you know, doing her thing, which, you know, if you've heard Yoko Ono, you know what her thing is. I don't need to tell you or describe it. <laughs> But yeah, I was like, wow, Yoko Ono still going at 90. I think that's great. Um, okay, that's it. And what I'm going to do is, at this point, I'm going to hand things off to our friend, Rachel from Des Moines. And she is going to give you the chart chat. So, without any further ado, take it away, Rachel. Thanks, Andy. Hello, and welcome back to Rachel's Chart Chat for another week. Thanks to everyone who listened last week. I got some nice comments from listener Carolyn who told me she remembered singing I Love a Rainy Night with her grandma. And Jeffrey shared his appreciation of Phil Seymour's Precious to Me. And not one person asked, what is it with you and Spirogyra? So we'll call that a win. As a reminder, you can tune in to the VJ Big Suit Twitch show on Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Central. It's been nice to see some of the chart chatters joining in the fun over there. For this week's 70s chart, we're in February 13th of 1971. At number 100, we start off with Ask Me No Questions by B.B. King. This would make it to number 40. This was the third single off of his 18th album, Indianola Mississippi Seeds. And that's the one that has the cover art with a watermelon metal guitar. I was looking up some chart statistics for B.B. King. I saw that he released his first single in 1949, and the first one to chart on any chart was 1951. And his first appearance on the U.S. Hot 100 was in 1964. I just like this song because it's kind of just nice traditional blues song and shows off, uh, you know, one of the styles that he worked in. And the B-side of this one, I like the title, uh, Nobody Loves Me But My Mother. At number 97, we have The Look of Love by Isaac Hayes. That would make it to number 79. 
And this is, uh, you know, the one that was written by Burt Bacharach and Hal David, made famous by Dusty Springfield. And when I was listening to this song, I felt it sounded like this could be a Bond theme or like, why did they let Isaac Hayes do a Bond theme? And then I came to learn that this was in the 1967 Casino Royale that is considered as a James Bond spoof. So I was dumb yet right. And I just got to be a little curious about Bond themes that they've had over the years. And... I looked up who the first, you know, considering that Isaac Hayes is an American artist, I looked up who the first American to sing the James Bond theme was, and it was Nancy Sinatra with you from You Only Live Twice. Debuting at number 84 this week is Brewer and Shipley's hit One Toke Over the Line. And when this one started up, I kind of thought like, uh, you know, I've heard this a billion times, but I just gave it a little bit of a different listen and um, and I just really enjoyed this one. I was singing along, enjoying myself. So I thought I'll throw it on the chart picks. And I'm so glad I did because as I was researching it, I came to learn that this had been covered on the Lawrence Welk show in 71 uh, by the singers Gail Farrell and Dick Dale. And he was from Algona, Iowa. And it got a good reception on the show. And Lawrence Welk in his outro dubbed it as a new spiritual. Um, but the other side of this is at the same time, Spiro Agnew and others in the Nixon administration were coming down hard on this song and others like it for, you know, being a bad influence on our on our youth. Uh, Brewer and Shipley was a duo of Michael Brewer from Oklahoma City and Tom Shipley from Mineral Ridge, Ohio, which is the Youngstown area. I learned that they first met in Ohio, uh, but then got together as a duo in Los Angeles and started recording together. This was their only top 40 hit. It made it to number 10, but they did have two other Hot 100 appearances. At number 78 is You're the One by The Three Degrees. That would make it one notch higher to number 77. The Three Degrees were a Philly soul girl group, and I learned that they've had 16 different members through the years, uh, always as a trio, and they are still active. They had nine Hot 100 appearances, uh, their biggest hit was singing back up on The Sound of Philadelphia, TSOP, but they did also hit number two with their own song, When Will I See You Again. This one that just really grabbed me. I love the sound of it. Um, it feels like maybe um, Lyle Workman may have been influenced in his uh, work on the Superbad soundtrack by songs like this. And I was looking up a video for this, and I came to learn that the song had originally been done by a group called Little Sister, which was a vocal group consisting of Sly Stone's actual younger sister and two other female singers, and they also appear on this Hot 100 with their own song, Somebody's Watching You. So both, I think both the Little Sister version and the Three Degrees version of Either One are great, uh, a lot of fun, have kind of an early rap part in the song, in the intro, and just a great sound. And the video from the Three Degrees is really cool. They have great matching, coordinating outfits. And finally from the 70s this week, at number 76, is Ride a White Swan by T-Rex. And that was as high as it would get in the States, but it was a number two hit in the UK. And it was a standalone single over there, but here it was released on their album, also called T-Rex. And so this was a time of their changing their name. They were actually known as Tyrannosaurus Rex for their first couple albums, and then changed their sound kind of from folk to glam rock, and changed the name, just shortened it to T-Rex, which is how I always knew them. I was surprised to learn they had been as Tyrannosaurus Rex. This was our first charting single in the U.S., they had four total Hot 100 appearances. I just really like this one. Um, always surprising to me how huge they were in the UK versus we kind of only know them for Get It On, Bang It Gong here. So I'd be interested to read any type of, you know, scholarly article about why that might have been. 
Um, the 80s chart this week, they did a countdown called the Presidential Countdown, which I have not listened to. So instead, I thought I would go back and talk to you about some songs that we missed over the course of the year. Um, you know, when they go many weeks between doing different years, things are bound to get missed that didn't have very short chart lives. So I just want to tell you about a few of those. Do It To My Mind by Johnny Bristol. That song made it to number 43. It was on the charts uh, from the tail end of November of 76 to February of 77. And Johnny Bristol is a songwriter and a producer for the Motown label. He was originally from Morgantown, North Carolina. And he was a guy that started out as a performer, trying, you know, released a few singles, but then he got into, you know, the production side of things. But then by the mid 70s, he gave it another shot as a solo artist. He had one top 10 hit and then a few others, including uh, this one. I really love, obviously, if I could stick in my mind, I remember to when I come back to it. And I learned that he uh, he produced a lot of different artists, but including Boz Skaggs. So that was kind of cool. Uh, the next one I want to tell you about is another song by Minnie Ripperton. Uh, you know her for loving you and for being Maya Rudolph's mother. The song is called Inside My Love. Uh, this made it to number 76. It was her only other Hot 100 appearance besides Loving You. Uh, this came out in August of 75. It was on the charts for about four weeks. This is off of her third album, Adventures in Paradise. And the, the Wikipedia page quotes a BBC music article that appreciates the contrast between the suggestive lyrics and her innocent-sounding uh, voice. And this is, uh, this is a pretty cool song. If you know of her, if you like her, definitely check it out. Um, up next, we have a song from Stephen Stills called Can't Let Go, or sometimes credited as I Can't Let Go. And this made it to number 67. And this is on the charts from uh, October 6th of 84 to November 10th. This is the second single from his from Stephen Stills' 1984 solo album called Right By You. And as I recall from uh, the Best Shows podcast so far, they did not like this one. Uh, this has an interesting uh, kind of a co-lead vocal with uh, Michael Finnegan, who also contributed to the album in other ways. And I feel like if I could just play this for you with saying not the artist or anything, I don't think you would maybe guess it was Stephen Stills, especially, you know, uh, with the parts that uh, Finnegan is singing. But yeah, this I think this might, again, this is what's divisive. If you're thinking, you know, Stephen Stills of what he's known for, you're not going to like it if you just think of it as like a... An 80s kind of power ballady song, you might like it. Another one I want to share is Champagne Jam by the Atlanta Rhythm Section. That would make it to number 43 in the fall of 78. This is the first single off of that same album, Champagne Jam. Uh, two others went on to do a lot better on the charts, including uh, Imaginary Lover, which hit number seven. Um, this was off of their seventh album, and it was their most commercially successful, and I saw that it went platinum here in the U.S. And I was at a roller derby event last night, and they had a DJ, and he played this song, and I was very, very excited. And then I realized, like, oh, he's just playing that because it has jam in the title, and jam is a roller derby term, but you know what? I'll still take it. And the last one I wanted to mention is a song called Taking It Easy by the duo Seals and Crops. That would make it to number 79, um, also in the fall of 78. That was their final Hot 100 appearance. It's the second single off of the album of the same name. And there's another one. I guess I could just wish I could just play it for you. And I don't think you would guess it was them. It's much harder rocking than what they're known for with, you know, Summer Breeze and uh, Hummingbirds and these other ones. But I really like it. I can just listen to it over and over and get a lot of enjoyment out of it. 
Uh, before I go, I have want to plug an upcoming uh, podcast appearance of mine on a great program called The Tom and Joe Show that I was invited to be on, uh, discussing the 50th anniversary of The Dark Side of the Moon. And that will be available on March 1st on their YouTube channel. And I'll be sure to tweet out a link when that's available. Well, that's all for me this week. Thanks so much for listening. Back to you, Andy. Thank you, Rachel. Awesome stuff, as always. Looking forward to hearing you on the Tom and Joe show for that 50th anniversary of Dark Side of the Moon discussion. That should be great. I uh, I love hearing T-Rex's Ride a White Swan on the charts. That's really, really cool. Uh, if you know my 2018 novel, Now We Have Nothing, there's a character in there named Boland, named after Mark Boland, who rides a white swan. <laughs> And of course, it was because I was listening to a lot of T-Rex, and I was inspired by that, and I thought that was very cool. Okay, that about does it for us, folks. Thank you so, so much for listening to the show. This has been episode 269 of the People Are the Enemy podcast. Our theme song is Walrus Love by Nokia Ocean. You can find that song and more at pizzapuppies.bandcamp.com. My name is Andy Mascola. You can purchase my novels via Amazon and other online book retailers in both paperback and ebook formats for as little as $1.99. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you, Rachel from Des Moines. We love you. Peace. <laughs>